Good morning. A couple of weeks ago, I received a telephone call and asked if I would be the substitute for today. So I got to thinking about that word substitute. And that reminded me of a person that I had heard about that was called to substitute for a pastor in one of those little country churches. You know those little country churches that have the windows with the panes, six or eight panes in the window? And so the pastor arrived there, the substitute arrived there, and he was sitting there in the auditorium thinking about his message of the morning, and he said, you know, he said, I've come to you this morning as a substitute. He said, you see the little window over there where the, where the uh, stone has gone through it? It's broken and they have a cardboard patch in the window. He said, I'm just like that little cardboard patch in the window over there. He said, I'm a substitute for the real thing. And the uh, morning went along. The uh, sermon went well and the man was standing at the back at the end and a little fellow walked up to him and he said, Sir, I have one thing to say to you. And he said, That is? He said, You are no piece of cardboard. You are a real pain. <laughs> well, I'll work at being a pain this morning, okay? <laughs> our, the title of our lesson this morning is The Unreservedness of Faith. The Unreservedness of Faith. And you'll see what I mean by that title as we get into our lesson a little bit. Uh, The the background for our lesson this morning is taken from an incident, several incidents actually, that took place back in in 2 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel uh, chapters 12 through 18. You might want to just put your finger over there because we're going to refer back there a number of times as we get started. And a little review of that pass of that section might be helpful as we delve into our lesson in Psalm number three today. Uh, David had several wives, uh, one of which was Bathsheba, with whom he was immoral. Uh, David arranged for the death of her husband Uriah. Uh, Nathan the prophet knew of the episode and the circumstances causing the death of Uriah, and Nathan went to David with a hypothetical, parallel, a hypothetical story paralleling his actions with Bathsheba. That, uh, the scripture around that, uh, that confrontation is 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 1 through 6. Uh, the, the story required David to choose between two alternatives. One wrong alternative, one, one right alternative. And as the story unfolded, David made up his mind and he, he made his, uh, uh, he, he despised the unrighteous and he took sides with the righteous person in that, uh, in that story. In effect, uh, Nathan told him, he said, you are a despised person because you are the picture of that righteous, unrighteous man. Uh, that's 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 7. Uh, in this setting, God gave, da- God gave David a message from Nathan. You'll find it in 2 Samuel 12, 10 through 12, and I want to read that for us by way of introduction. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, 
because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Behold, I will rise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel under the sun. You could have blown David away with a feather at this point. Uh, David knew he had sinned and that uh, God had used Nathan, uh, Nathan to call him on it. The dialogue continues in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. Then, then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. Following the confrontation, Nathan tells David he's caused the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme and the resulting child of his relationship with Bathsheba will die. David was brokenhearted. The child was born and became very sick and the child died. This is the setting for which we learn the great lesson about babies who die. They're ushered into heaven. It was the death of the child that David has recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for our learning. We see that in, in 2 Samuel 12:23, where, where we learn, I will not go to him, David said, but he, I will go to him, but he will not return to me. In other words, David would one day see him in heaven. It was that great story. David and Bathsheba soon became the parents of Solomon soon after. Two other sons and a daughter later, later appeared on the scene, Absalom, Amnon, and beautiful Tamar. Amnon was immoral with his beautiful sister Tamar. Uh, his death is eventually orchestrated by grudge-holding Absalom, so his brother killed him. Uh, D- uh, David loved Absalom, but this whole sordid mess, this whole sordid uh, episode here, caused an angry rift between David and Absalom. Absalom fled to a distant area for three years. David was eventually comforted relative to Amnon's death. And and, uh, the Bible tells us in chapter 14 and verse 1 that that his heart was once again inclined toward his son Absalom. But for some period of time, Absalom managed to establish himself as a perceived leader in Israel. Uh, The scripture says, Amnon stole, or Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel, 15.6. Eventually, there was enough support uh, and togetherness to drive his father, King David, from Jerusalem in a revolt. Uh, David sees the developing political storm, uh, and he flees into the wilderness. Absalom enters Jerusalem and basically declares himself king at that time. Uh, we have now the, the setting and can appreciate the dire circumstances that David faced in writing this psalm that's before us this morning. You talk about conflict. You talk about adversity. This psalm, this psalm, this song is one of lament. A lament is a, an expression of deep sorrow, of great mourning. The song of lament is over the attempted overthrow of David as king by his beloved son, Absalom. 
It is the first psalm in which we see uh, an interesting little word that appears. You're going to find it three times in this psalm, the word selah. Selah is a word from the wonderful world of music. It, uh, it seems when a composer uh, used the selah word in his music that it called for a pause or a rest or a hush. Uh, you, you have no, no doubt heard or observed an orchestra uh, with every instrument playing and it gets to a certain uh, position in that musical piece where everything just stops dead silence. Usually when it starts out again, uh, the, the composition takes on a special meaning. Notice that sila, that little word, appears uh, three times in the passage before us today, after verse 2, after verse 4, and after verse 8. Following the rest, following the pause, following the selah, uh, the, the thought pattern changes. Today we're going to look at the three selahs of Psalm chapter 3. Now we're ready to delve in. Are you ready? All right. Selah number one, the admission of trouble. The admission of trouble. That's on your outline before you today. And we need to read the first couple of verses here of Psalm chapter 3. And if your Bible is like mine, you have a little introductory paragraph there. It talks about this being relative to the time with Absalom. And that's uh, what we have just rehearsed. Uh, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, "There there is no salvation for him in God. Notice the prayer starts, O Lord. It's urgent. It's abrupt. It's hurried. It's, uh, David, David's life is at stake. Uh, the life of Israel is at stake. It's interesting to note another place where such a, a prayer is offered in that kind of a situation. And it's where Peter was walking on the water. And he got his eyes off of God. He, he got his eyes on the wind. He became frightened. He began to sink. And in that very instant he cried, Lord, save me. It was an urgent prayer. Uh, perhaps you've been in a situation where you have sensed that, that you needed help. and You didn't need it tomorrow. You didn't need it an hour from now. You needed it now. Perhaps, that, perhaps that's the thought behind another verse that we read in Psalm 46.1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. What is it that David was seeing? Well, in the second part of verse 1, My adversaries have increased, many are rising up against me. Uh, Absalom had had been developing his team for taking over the kingdom for a long time. Remember, he was separated from his family. Uh, Absalom was a a very nice-looking and a cunning man, handsome to say the least, Uh, He was also one who knew how to win friends and influence people. Uh, Commentators describe Absalom as a uh, smooth-spoken and a gifted liar. Uh, James Callahan said that a lie can be halfway around the world before the truth gets its boots on. And Absalom was the kind of a person who uh, who could start that kind of a lie. But one by one, uh, Absalom was increasing his circle. Uh, this, was, this was no small event that we're reading about here today. In fact, this in 2 Samuel 
18 verse 7, we learn that there were 20,000 men involved in this episode. Sometimes when we read these, we just pass over them so quickly that we we lose the magnitude of what is really here. I thought 20,000 men. So I hit the uh, on my computer, I hit census. And so I was able to narrow it down to Noblesville, Indiana. And I found out that in 2010, there were 52,000 people who lived in Noblesville, Indiana. The population is almost 50-50 between men and women. Uh, the, the male uh, census was 25,000 and the female census was 27,000. Uh, men over 16, 18,000. So I'm thinking to myself, suppose I have a little ragtag group out here and I'm trying to take on the city of Noblesville and here's all the men and they're surrounding me. I would think that'd be a pretty good undertaking, wouldn't you? Well, that's a, that's the magnitude of a situation in which David found himself here, uh, and the the group that was with uh, uh, that that was with Absalom. Physically, physically speaking, things were not a bit bright. The situation was devastating. It was a major event. Uh, hordes of people were were involved. Further, uh, Absalom evidently uh, made it his business to ridicule the faith of his father. Uh, His followers must have joined in this ridicule and it made matters even worse. Notice in verse number two, many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him in God. They're ridiculing his faith in that. Uh, In effect, the, the rank and file... Uh, we're, we're seeing the fleeing king, and he was, uh, he was beyond being helped. Uh, some were no doubt David's friends and, and uh, sorrowed over the thought that God had seemingly departed from helping him. Uh, David's enemies were, were overjoyed by the appearance of such a shellacking and relishing in the experience of, of the excitement. David knew in his heart that, that he had given reason for such, uh, for such thought. He was an adulterer. Uh, he was guilty of the grossest sin, having, uh, de- having orchestrated the death of Uriah. Now let's pause for, for just a, a personal perspective here for just a second. In my thought, in my preparation time, I was thinking of putting myself in David's shoes here for just a minute. There have been, there have been failures in my life. There are times where I have sinned against God. There are times where, even today, sins of long ago come to mind. I am at times uh, ashamed of those past behaviors and have to go to God over the things I once considered pleasurable and fun and smart, but were outright prideful acts of rebellion. But you know, even though... We are those kinds of people. I'm that kind of a person. I'm assuming you probably are too. Never does God leave us. Never does he forsake us. Let us let God speak for himself on his willingness to help us in a time of need. Hebrews 13, chapter 5 and 6. I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you, so that you can be confidently say, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid what man will do to me. Well, David did all of this not having the New Testament for help. 
All he had was the, the, uh, what was written at his time. But David knew something that we know as well, and that's the character of God. David recognized his failures. David received the word from Nathan the prophet that God had forgiven him. David also recognized that this may have been the sowing and reaping principle at work. Uh, that, that he was experienced what God had promised back there in Second Samuel chapter 12, where he said, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. Uh, there, there, is a, there is a saying that goes something like this. Maybe you've heard it before. Uh, don't tell me that crime doesn't pay. It just doesn't pay enough. Uh, David is not the object here. On your outline, you have this statement. David is not the object here. Uh, he admitted his terrible sins, but the object here in verse 2 is God and what the world thinks of him. But it is though David was saying, my behavior has devalued the impeccable character of God in the eyes of Israel. Notice the little word at the end of verse 2, Selah. Uh, Selah is often found in the Psalms. We mentioned it a minute ago, but most realize that, that music... Uh, it was in the forefront of what was written in most of these psalms. They're songs by the songster. And uh, you see the choir master referenced throughout the psalms. Uh, perhaps the pastor of my youth was correct when he taught on this, this verse of Selah, likewise on your outline, stop and think about that. Learning of David's circumstances remind us of our own. Many have or maybe even presently are experiencing misbehavior and rebellion of children, uh, personal, uh, personal or illnesses of loved ones, death, especially of family members. As I was thinking about that, I was thinking about the various times when we are impressed, especially by God. While living in Toledo, it was uh, my joy to accompany Pastor Fuller uh, on many occasions as he visited in the hospital and uh, two bereaving families. And at funerals, I remember him telling folks that there are, season, there, are seems, there seems to be seasons of life where God has our attention in a special way. Those three times are at the birth of a child, at a wedding, and at a funeral or at the death of a loved one. There are other times, but these will uh, help us personalize times and our own faith will be challenged and when we can depend on it in a special and a meaningful way. So seal number one, the admission of trouble. Seal number two, the affirmation of faith and trust in the Lord. The affirmation of faith and trust in the Lord. To grasp the power of what, of what is said in verse 3, first of all, we need to read verses 3 and 4. Are you ready? All right. But you, Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. To grasp the power of what is said in verse number 3, we need to be sure that we have the context in mind, the seriousness of the occasion. Uh, the human Ill inability to rectify the situation. Uh, King David is driven from his palace. Uh, he's genuinely outnumbered, greatly outnumbered. Uh, he is uh, he's sought by angry men who were once his trusted subjects. 
Uh, night has fallen, and David is dog-tired and nowhere to turn. In, the, in this dark and desolate situation, notice Dave, where, David, where David turns in verse number 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. Speaking regarding one word in that little passage, the word shield seems to be important in respect to what we're talking about this morning. Another person who that shield was really important to was the man Abraham, who experienced hardship and trials. Abraham faced disappointments with his uh, with members of his family. Uh, a lot was his nephew, but Abraham was a father figure to nephew. He took him under his wing, so to speak. Lot chose a sinful path, and Abraham knew it was a path of wickedness. Uh, angels uh, uh, appeared and told Abraham that Sodom was doomed. Abraham pleaded for Lot's survival. Uh, following the trial and the rescue of Lot, Genesis 15:1 appears. And notice that word, how it appears in what I'm about to read. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward will be very great. The thought comes to me, where do I turn when life turns sour, when all seems bleak, uh, when my world seems to, come up to, seems to come undone, where do I find help? Uh, when a loved one dies, when there's illness in the family, when there is a, no human way to improve the situation, does all else need to fail before I turn to God? What about you? Uh, at what stage in a trial do you look to God? Psalm 23 is perhaps the best known chapter in the whole scriptural passage. Here we learn that we can experience the shadow of death without fear. Why? Because God is with us. Even in the presence of our enemies, he makes our cup overflow. Yes, you can praise him. Even when life is hard, even when things seem hopeless and beyond our control. Another uh, similar verse along this line, Psalm 84:11, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Your outline contains this next statement. One commentary explained that a shield is that which encases the child of God. Uh, it is a protective coating that God places over, under, and around his child. God God's shields the believer in various ways. He protects him from that which may come from above. He protects him from that which may come from below. He protects him from that from behind. He protects him from that which he may meet head on, from the left or from the right. As I was penciling those words, the first of Scripture came, the passage of Scripture came to mind, Romans 8, 34 through 39. Please listen as I read them. Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us, who will separate us from the love of Christ. Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Those are all things that were experienced by the Apostle Paul. Just as it is written, for your sake we are, 
We are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. This is the attitude of the satanic system toward the child of God. But in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquered through him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Listen, friend, life has its rough places, but God has us covered. And does he ever have us covered? He has us encased in his shield. Notice verse 3, part B. My glory and the one who lifts my head. Uh, Absalom had, had turned the respected glory of God into a shameful disgrace. But David knew from, from his knowledge of God and the character of God that the shame and disgrace was temporary. And he would eventually see a restoration of his authority. Uh, he was applying Sila number two, true trust. Reliable faith in God, God being David's glory, he was on solid faith ground. Every aspect of life should be with the thought of glorifying God. Notice, notice verse 3 as well, the one who lifts up my head. Uh, David was hung over in sorrow. He loved Absalom. He loved God. He was struggling to reconcile those two thoughts. And deep down... He knew who the sustainer was. The, the, uh, that should bring us comfort and direction as well. When the night is dark, when the trial may be deep, but the divine sustainer will be the one who will help us. We will trust in him and, and apply him in the time of need. Is that where we turn? I hope you do. Will we realize God is our shield? He has encased us with a divine coating of safety. You see, David had a history with God. David's thinking was not just wishful thinking. He had experienced God's protective hands many times in days gone by. David knew that that when the depths of despair, in the depths of despair, we cannot even hold up our heads. God is there to lift it for us. To encourage us and let us know that we can depend on him. Also on your outline. He was not going to abandon his faith in the light of another opportunity uh, to prove God faithful. As I was studying this passage some months ago, I was so encouraged one Sunday morning when I came to hear the Harbor Shores Choir sing that song, he lifteth my head. Do you remember that? Last September that, that took place. He's the lifter up of our heads. I was so surprised because I had just been reading this. It's somewhat obscure. Uh, and you need to know a little bit about the word of God to know the context of that song. But I was so surprised to hear that just that day. It was such a blessing to me. So I sent uh, Mrs. Jennings a note and I told her what a joy that was. And she said, it's interesting that you'd send that note. But she she said, a number of the choir members, as we were getting ready for that Sunday, were very moved by that as well. So I was was very pleased to get that note, and I was really encouraged by that song. Verse 4, I was crying to the Lord with my voice. 
He answered me from his holy mountain. Yes, yes, silent prayers are heard. But even good men of faith at times find themselves verbalizing aloud when they feel the urgency and the extremity of a special need. Perhaps David was was thinking of his enemies uh, who with loud voices were clamoring against him. Uh, He would lift his voice to God, the only one who could help him. And we learn from God's response in such times of need here in verse 4b, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Answers to prayer are sweet indeed. In my own life, I've, been, I've lived long enough to know that God, in fact, does answer prayer. In the flow of Psalm 3, it seems David may have been preparing for the night and expressing his prayer before trying to go to sleep. Although most call Psalm 3 the morning prayer, it also impresses me that the time for prayers is also held for morning or night uh, in the life of the believer who trusts in God, who's the sustainer of his life. Sila number three was admitting the troubles, owning up to our failures and sins, not minimizing our sins and failures, but seeing the destruction of our wicked ways have caused. Selah number two is affirming our faith and trust in God, in the Lord, knowing God's character is so important, trusting his word, knowing that he will keep his promises, and laying our burdens at his feet in reverential, earnest prayer is the way to relaxation and rest. Now, Selah number three. Are you ready for this one? The anticipation of victory. The anticipation of victory. A word of personal testimony. It's been my joy to be involved in ministry for uh, over 30 years. My work uh, was business manager and other administrative roles, mostly in churches. Uh, early on, each, uh, each board member in my first assignment uh, had, a commi- had a committee assignment. My responsibility included preparing reports and agendas and preparing the committee chairman for the monthly meeting. Uh, In comparison to my background and experience, the organization was rather large. Uh, The few times uh, that I met with the committee, I was really nervous the first few times. Uh, Here were these experienced leaders in the organization. I was a young man uh, lacking in the experience that they had. I remember being so relieved, thinking I'd survived the first few months uh, after those meetings. I hear some of you laughing. You've had similar experiences. After some months, the, the Lord allowed me to come to grips with the, uh, with the factor of nerves and so on. And it, it actually got to the place where I look forward to these meetings with these godly men. The Lord taught me that humility and preparation were the keys to involvement in these meetings. Another uh, situation similar to that, major projects uh, were another area of responsibility, often started in a quandary in my mind, uh, knowing that something needed to be done and uh, having little or no knowledge or experience or education often made me ask, how will I ever accomplish this task? Uh, One project was asking for quotes for property insurance. Uh, I did not know how to go about this project. Uh, The renewal date, however, was uh, was starting to stare us in the face, and there's just a 
there's just something about uh, uh, deadlines and, and renewal dates and so on that drive us to, uh, that put pressure on us and, and get us going in the right direction. Uh, after reading the current policy and listing the highlights, a plan began to come together. So with my summary, I was able to uh, communicate with some degree of knowledge. Eventually, the project was completed and recommended to the committee and then to the board for decision. And the presentation came together in such a way that favorable comments came my way when finished. Again, humility and preparation were the keys to seeing that the Lord honored in the projects in which very little was known when it started. God was responsible in both cases, and he brought me along. There was a, these were great learning experiences and paved the way for accomplishing many uh, future situations. Uh, what am I trying to say in all this? No matter how dark the understanding and the lack of knowledge what, of what to do, God will see you through the challenges if you trust him and get to work. Uh, trust him. Go as far as you can. Then he reveals the next move. And he arranges things so, so his will comes to pass. After a while, you'll discover the, the experience. Uh, experiences may vary, but the processes will be the same. What is the process? Look to God for wisdom. And I think that's what David was doing here. I'm reminded of a phrase in a song that we used to sing. God can do anything. God can do anything. God can do anything but fail. God never fails. David was experienced in trusting God. The current trial was not any he'd faced before. uh, But David knew that in the end, God would be glorified. Uh, He knew the character of his God. He knew that anything that happened to him had to first pass muster with his God. You see, his past experience in knowing how to mentally process his dilemma brought peace to him. Verse 5, I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. David was able to put the trial aside. The day had ended. It was time for bed. He could lie down and sleep. One thing the believer realizes is that God never slumbers, nor does he sleep. God is on duty 24-7, 365. Isn't that something? We clock out at certain times. But God, but God, in God's plan for the ages, they continue to unfold as humans sleep. In my years of service... Uh, many, uh, much considerable time was uh, required in the maintenance department. Maintenance is a key to any organization. If you've got a building, it requires maintenance. If you've got grounds, they require maintenance. Harbor Shores Church is no difference. Is no different. Uh, this church owes a great debt of gratitude to the uh, those who work in that area that come in here early and get this place ready to go, who work late into the night some nights, getting the facilities in good shape, ready to go and clean for the next event. My head actually goes off to Scott Lewis and to Becky Lewis and to their family and to Kenny Gwill and those who work alongside them. They're, they're heroes around here. They really are. They're not seen, but 
believe me, their work is very much appreciated and very valuable. I'm not sure what God's organization chart would look like. I don't know if he has maintenance on his organization chart. It was always on my church organization chart. I don't know if it was on God's, but he does have this one on his. He's got a sustenance department. David knew he could trust God to sustain him. God's department of sustenance never closed, always open. Have you got the picture? Here's the child of God, outnumbered by the opposition. Time is running out. He's on the run. The clouds of war are not far away. The danger, the suspense is building. He realizes that, humanly speaking, there is no hope. It's a very dark, dreary situation. He relies on God to sustain him, and he sleeps peacefully. Have you noticed that our scripture is coming to us? Have you noticed the grammar here? It's all past tense. He has already experienced it. It's not sustenance for which he's hoping. It's sustenance that's already proven itself reliable. Next, we're given the secret of that type of living in verse number 6. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me. And here's the secret. Here it is. The universe, the, the, the title of our lesson today, the unreservedness of faith. We need to ask a question. What is faith? Is it uh, something that, that we can clearly see and fully understand? Is that faith? Answer. Let's let the Bible answer that for us. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. In David's situation, what, uh, what was seen was not a level playing field. The odds were stacked against him, against the man of God. Uh, staring him in the face was total wipeout. But, but since when does the person of God march to the drumbeat of what is seen? The drumbeat of what seems evident, of what seems an insurmountable. On your outline, David realized the danger he was in. He was no fool, but his faith in God kept him strong and steady and unafraid. The teaching of Romans 8 seems appropriate in such a situation where we read once again in Romans 8, a few verses prior to the ones we read a few minutes ago, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God. And the teaching goes on to mention several kinds of problems, perils, and insurmountable danger. And in the middle of the teaching, where all the perils are being highlighted, we find this nugget in Romans 8.37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. The King James Version says we are more than conquerors. David affirmed his trust in the Lord and exercised his faith by being fearless, no matter the odds and the danger, and trusted that, that God would give him the victory. Moving into verse number 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheeks. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. It is now morning. David is rested, and his heart goes out to God in prayer again. As I was contemplating the resolve of David in trusting God, 
the words of that song we just sang came to mind. I am resolved no longer to linger, charmed by the world's delight. Things that are higher, things that are nobler, these have allured my sight. I am resolved to go to the Savior, leaving my sin and strife. He is the true one. He is the just one. He hath the words of life. I am resolved to follow the Savior, faithful and true each day. Heed what he saith, do what he willeth. He is the living way. I am resolved to enter the kingdom, leaving the paths of sin. Friends may oppress me, foes may beset me, still will I enter in. I will hasten to him, hasten so glad and free. That's what David's doing here. Jesus, greatest, highest, I will come to thee. We're going to hasten to him, hasten so glad and free. We're going to get there fast. We're going to get there in a hurry. We're we're going to God with an attitude that that will be more than conquerors. That we're going in a spirit of freedom and gladness. I believe that was David's approach as he exercised this unreservedness of faith. It is important to realize that David trusted God to go before him, and that is exactly what took place. We might see that, we might notice the phrase in verse 7, smitten on the cheek. Might uh, think about a person being slapped across the face. I'm not proud of my behavior as a young person. The smart remarks that I were so prone to make I now see as disrespectful and rude, but I recall a time in junior high school when one of my teachers slapped me across the face. I was so embarrassed. It hurt. I cried. I deserved the humiliation. That's a picture of what was taking place right here. God slapped them across the face. Humiliation seems to be the sense of smiting the the cheek of the enemy. And David saw his enemies, a pack of animals that needed to have their teeth broken. The broken teeth signifies God having removed strength from the enemy. Add it all together, and the enemy is now humiliated and powerless to inflict injury. Verse number 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. An important theme surfaces in this verse. But first, before we discuss it, let's realize what this verse is not saying. And it's what many believe today, and that is that every person who's ever lived is a child of God. And when life is over, they go to heaven. In other words, the universal fatherhood of God and brotherhood of man, that's prevailing wisdom in our world today. We hear it all the time. We see it in the speeches. We, we, it's just everywhere. Dr. Spurgeon in the Treasury of David uh, points out that this verse brings to light the doctrine of salvation by grace alone. And that's where we stand. God chooses his people. He calls them by his grace. He uses them by the Holy Spirit to get, to get man's attention. He keeps them by his power. Salvation is not of man. Salvation is not by man. Note the words of Romans 9:15 and 16. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Also, Romans 9:18. 
So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Following Romans 9 goes, goes into the picture. Romans 9 goes into the picture in the following verses of the potter and the clay. The potter is God. The clay is humanity. That's me. That's you. The clay is not in charge. The potter is in charge. And he makes the vessels as he sees fit. David refused to take any credit for the good outcome of this confrontation. He saw victory completely the Lord's doing. Not only did David see God as the source of salvation, but as the source of blessing for his people. As the closing phrase of verse 8 indicates, your blessing be upon your people. I hope you can see the hand of God in this psalm. How God helped David see and understand that he was in trouble. How God preserved David. How God comforted David. How God provided peace and rest for David. How God removed fear from David's heart. How God provided salvation and blessing. How God provided victory over David's enemy. How God supplies blessing to those for whom he has provided salvation. How God wants his people in similar circumstances to come to him in prayer. Are you glad that David wrote the psalm for our learning this morning? I certainly am. Our Father in heaven, as we pause here just at the conclusion of these words, we pray that you'll take them and use them. We pray that there'll be a help to people who are here today. We pray that you'll comfort our hearts when they need comforting, that you'll challenge us where we need to be challenged, that you'll help us to live in the power of God's Spirit. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.